0: Welcome everybody. My name is Dan uh, McDonald. I am a teaching pastor here at Grace Toronto and I welcome you back from what I hope was a great summer. Uh, We are beginning a series today on what we call our vision and values and we are focusing it on what Jesus has taught us that he cares about for his church to become. And so this morning we are looking at a passage of scripture as we do every week, and this week it's from Matthew 28, and here to help with the reading is Rachel. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we begin this series on our vision for ourselves as a church, and what Jesus said he desires for his church, Jesus gives us here some words. Matthew records them as his last words, not because they're his actual last, but because Matthew wants to give them the literary importance of last words. These are famous words. And if you have been a Christian for any length of time, these are words which you have ambivalence about. You might have conflicting feelings with them because for many of us, these verses make us feel guilty, inadequate, fearful, possibly even ashamed. We often feel like we haven't done enough to obey this command. And if you're one of those people, welcome to the club. That's me too. I can remember. When I first was thinking of becoming a Christian, I remember saying to myself, I am willing to try this Christianity thing as long as I don't have to tell anybody about it. I was not willing to do anything more than become a Christian. Being public about it was one step too far. I felt fear, I felt inadequate, and I also felt I'm not sure I'm supposed to. And so I know how you feel because all of those feelings have been and sometimes still are mine. And if you're not a Christian, you probably have conflicted feelings about this verse as well, because doesn't it sound rather intolerant, imperialistic even? You're trying to persuade people who are not yet Christian to become Christians. I don't like that. I don't feel that's right. So for all of us, wherever we are in our journey of faith, This passage has some tension points, but as a command of Jesus Christ and one of the last commands he gives us, it has profound implications for who the church should be. So let us walk through this passage relatively quickly and see if it has any answers to our own conflicting tensions and objections. Firstly, to our fear, we look at the person. Secondly, To our sense of apathy, we have the command. And thirdly, to our objection of inadequacy, we have a promise. Here we're confronted with a person, his command, and his promise. Let's look at those three. The person. The first couple of verses, we see the 11 disciples going to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them to go. Possibly. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Here's the risen Jesus showing himself to the 11 disciples who are left. Judas has gone and committed suicide, as we know from history. And he is appearing to the 11 who are left, his closest followers. He has risen from real physical death. History tells us that he actually died. And history tells us that he actually rose. This is one of many appearances Jesus will make to hundreds of people in about a month's time overall. Jesus is appearing to the 11, possibly more. Scholars are divided. I'm not going to get into that fight. But these 11 often brought their friends and families with them. So there could be more hearing this. What's important is he's talking to the eleven. He will return later to the region of Jerusalem in the south, Galilee's in the north. He will return, he will say his actual last words, and then he will ascend physically to heaven in their sight. But these words, men and women, these words encapsulate for us the person of Jesus and the mission of his church. So we will look at them carefully. First of all, the person, risen from the dead. If you're here and you are not a Christian, and you think Christianity is just another religion that is uncoupled from facts, I need to tell you, you are absolutely wrong. I know that that may trigger some of you. It's not often in our culture we get to say that, but facts are facts, and they stubbornly refuse to go away. He has been witnessed by thousands as dying on a cross. Witnessed by hundreds as having physically risen from the dead. He is worshipped because he is who he said he is. God come into human flesh. Now the text here says some doubted. The Greek word there, it's hard to translate, could be wondered or doubted. We're not sure exactly what is meant. Doubted is a good translation. So is wondered. But these 11... That's why people think there may be more than 11. It may be those others than the 11 who are doubting or wondering. I think it's the 11. But think about this for for a moment. Think of the implications of seeing risen from the dead someone who said, I am God and I'm going to die for you because I love you. Think about that. Put yourself in their, their sandals, as it were. Who has ever heard of a God who created all of the universe? Who in holiness has the right to evaluate the moral correctness of everyone in the universe and then in love went to pay the debt of everyone who lived by dying on a cross and suffering for them. This is staggering. And if you've been a Christian long enough, it becomes mundane and normal but not here. This group, mostly Jewish, cannot believe that the God who is so far up there, who judges, who's perfect, who's other than them, could be so loving and caring that he would take all their moral wrong upon himself. In my Instagram feed this week, I look at it irregularly, but I found something quite interesting. There was a young woman in the UK who was being interviewed by a Christian, and he said, do you believe that God died for you? And she said, oh, of course not. Why not, he asked. Well, nobody would die for me. What? Sorry, I can't say it as a British person would do. What? Do you mean that you don't think your father might die for you? Well, no, well, of course he would, she said. Well, what's the difference? And she said, well, that's because of the relationship I have with my father. God doesn't have that kind of relationship with us, really. I'm here to tell you that billions of people have found out that that is not true. They have found out that God loves us more than a human father would. The staggering beauty of the gospel is this. God loves you more than any human does. He loved us enough as our heavenly father who, feeling the separation that we had created by our own moral wrong, sent his son to die for us and take the guilt of our sin for the joy of freeing us from anything that might inhibit communion and loving adoption by him. He sent his son and Jesus for the joy set before him of that reconciliation endured the cross, despised its shame and died for you and you and me. What about you? The God who wants to have eternal relationship and fellowship with people like me and you is the God standing before his disciples, having died to prove that. Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest moral philosopher and theologian that has, been, that has ever existed in North American history, sent a letter to Lady Pepperhill, a congregant, to comfort her upon the untimely death of her only son, And in his letter, he wrote these words. He suffered that we might be delivered. His soul was exceedingly sorrowful unto death that we might receive everlasting consolation. He was oppressed and afflicted that we might be supported. He was cast into the furnace of God's anger that we might swim in the rivers of God's pleasure. His heart was overwhelmed in a flood of sorrow and anguish that our hearts might be overwhelmed with a flood of eternal joy. This is the Jesus who stood before them and who stands before you and me right now. With the nails, scars still in his wrists and legs, he looks and says, all authority in heaven and on earth is now mine. I have purchased your freedom with my blood. I have broken the power of death by rising from it, having paid the debt of your guilt, having broken the power of death. I come with all authority in front of you. And I ask you, don't you enjoy, those of you who are Christians, don't you enjoy having Jesus free you from the guilt of your sin? Don't you enjoy having Jesus free you from the corrupting power and slavery to your own selfishness? Don't you enjoy feeling perfectly and infinitely loved? Don't you enjoy having someone who just always forgives you because of what his son has done? Isn't that joyful for you? Don't you find it joyful when someone who is not yet a Christian comes to believe in Jesus and has the gift? Of forgiveness given to them and it washes down upon them and the joy springs. Don't you find that joyful? Jesus comes to us with all authority, having come to us in all humility and having suffered for us and died for us. The one who suffered is the one who now speaks these words, I am the reigning king of all creation. It was my joy to die for you and to free you. Now count it joy and love to help to free others. As we gaze at this person, those of us who are not Christians, you need to hear this. I will trip over you one day, you carpet. Those of us who are not Christians, that's why I do this. I just realized it. If you're not a Christian, I need you to know we're not really trying to brainwash you. We're not trying to sell you anything. We're not trying to get you to join our religious club. We're not even trying to offend you, although we might be. Actually, we love you. We know you might be offended. We've experienced, though, the incredible, unconditional, infinite grace of God come to us in His Son, Jesus. We've gazed at His face and seen the depth of His love, and we just want you to be introduced to this God, the God who is, the God who is there. The God who loves people enough to send his son to die for them and the son who loves people enough to go and die and offer full forgiveness and eternal life to you as a free gift. That's all we're trying to do. We're not trying to make you one of us. We're trying to introduce you to him. We we say, shouldn't you consider that? Isn't that good news? Shouldn't you at least explore And if you're a Christian and you're afraid because you know the culture is pretty hostile to this idea of being accountable to a God or even needing forgiveness, take your fear, take your fear and look at Jesus in his risen glory, his greatness, and in his dying love, his goodness. This is the goodness of the great God. This is the greatness of the good God. Give your fear to him. Remember, you are not trying to persuade people about some kind of weird cult. You are not trying to push a product on anybody. You're not trying to get people into your religious club. You're trying to introduce people to the most thrilling person in the history of history. Who is... Look, okay, let's just be honest here. Those of you who are newly in a relationship... Newly married, newly engaged, or engaged, married for a while, even have kids. Is it not true that you look at your single friends and you go, I know someone I want to introduce you to. (laughs) Sorry, this is a Toronto thing. And if you have been at Grace Toronto long enough and you've met Joe Choi yet, you will know it's a pastoral thing. Joe's nickname is the godfather or the matchmaker to those of us who know. But he's not alone. I just have spent the last month talking to people in relationship who are thinking of friends who are not in relationship and they think they have someone they wanna introduce them to. That's what we do. That's the essentially human love we have for others that they want them to find someone who loves them. Men and women, who does that better than God? Who is more lovable than God? Who is greater or more thrilling than God? Who would change your friend's life and pour into them a love deeper and more infinite and more lasting and more unbreakable than God? Than Jesus? None. Jesus is the one we want to introduce people to. Now, I know you're going to say, yeah, but I have to get out of my comfort zone. Who left his comfort zone to die for you? Yeah, but I'm going to have to go and face rejection and hostility possibly in a culture that isn't particularly religious. Who withstood rejection and hostility for you? There is nothing you fear that he did not feel and experience himself. And he did it anyways out of the plenitude of his love. And he promises, allow my spirit to fill you and your fear will be dissolved in the plenitude of your love. The beginning of being a church that makes disciples is being a church that gazes at the Jesus who stands before us, risen, reigning with all authority, having descended and suffered with all humility and love. Finally, I need to ask you, if lost people like you and me matter this much to God, shouldn't they matter to us? If you're so filled with your own view of you that you don't see why Jesus made and remade you, you're really out of touch with the God who died for you, because he died for you and rose for you so you could introduce him to other people. When I was in seminary many years ago, I met a, a man named Elliot and he was a, a friend of mine and he, had, he knew as a personal friend a guy named Roger Hershey. You've never heard of Roger, but Roger was the most contagious Christian any of us had ever met. He would tell people about Jesus all the time. It was, he was annoyingly good at it, if you know what I mean, if you've ever been, he was just annoyingly natural with it. So I finally said to Elliot, As we were having lunch, I said, what's the secret with the guy, Roger? He's seen so many people hear about Jesus and become Christians because of him. He said, Dan, Jesus is just his best friend. So whether you're a waiter that he's just met or an old friend from high school, he just wanted people to know about Jesus. And so he would just tell them. That's the first step. See the person. Let his love dissolve your fear. Perfect love casts out fear. The person. Secondly, the command. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Here, of course, is where we feel the weight of the authority of Jesus in this passage because he issues a command and it's a clear one. And this is where our inadequacy begins to rise. We'll discuss that in a moment, but let's just sit under the command and and, and walk through it for a moment because there are clear implications for how we want to go forward as a church. In our five-year planning, we want to tell you that and we want to challenge you to some things that we think this bears upon you. The two categories about this command, I'm gonna look at the depth of the command and the breadth. The breadth is go to all nations, make disciples of all nations, The depth is go and make disciples, so we'll look firstly at depth. What does it mean to make disciples? Because the imperative here in the Greek is on that word. That word for making disciples is the the full imperative. The go because of its grammatical union and relationship with that imperative in Greek grammar is also then a command. So it's not just as you are going, which would be the wouldn't translation of that word go, but it gets turned into a go and make disciples. So what what does it mean to be a disciple? So in this context with the 11, they would know this about what it meant to be a disciple because they had done this. To be a disciple is someone who follows a teacher, a rabbi in their Jewish case, usually stopping their previous course of living or adjusting it deeply To regularly be with that rabbi or teacher. Follow them around if they were a traveling one. Memorize their teachings. Live out their teachings. Imitate the lifestyle and values of this rabbi or teacher. It was a wholehearted giving of yourself to that person, their beliefs, and their way of life. You gave them authority to shape and reshape your life. And you saw their teachings as the truth and the way. Not a truth, but the truth. Men and women, that's a disciple that we're all called to be. Not a half-hearted fan of Jesus, not someone who just intellectually believes in Jesus, not someone who who sticks Jesus a little bit into their calendar and shows up a couple hours a week or something like that, but one who wholeheartedly gives their life over and says, come and reshape me because I want to follow you. I want to listen to your teachings. I want to let other people know about you. I want your way of life to be my way of living." When I became a Christian, I was asked to pray a prayer and it had two parts. The first one, and it's the one if you've grown up in evangelical circles, you know well, is to actually ask to receive the gift of forgiveness by asking Jesus into your life. So I prayed, Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for me. Come into my life and forgive me. I accept the gift of forgiveness that you gave, that you offer. But there's a second part of that prayer as I think about it back in my university days and that was surrendering control of my life. I remember that prayer and it was this, Lord open up my life and I ask you to come in and make me the kind of person you want me to be. It was a prayer of accepting a gift and surrendering a life. Every morning, men and women, I go and I open up my Bible, and in my prayers, I renew both aspects of that original prayer. I ask to be renewed by His grace and accept it anew, and I ask to surrender myself anew to His authority and guidance. Men and women, that is what it is to be a disciple. And that is what it is to make disciples. We take proactive initiative, not just to make people fans of Jesus, but wholehearted followers of him. This verse is the verse which most succinctly and robustly describes who we feel we're called to be. We are called to be a church of disciples who make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, he says here, which command includes this one, to make other disciples. So, if you know the intellectual theological discussion as to whether it was just the 11 who were told to make disciples, it really becomes irrelevant because of the self-replicating nature of the command. Go and make disciples to observe everything I've told you, including this one, to make other disciples. So, the command is to you, period, all of us, full stop. It's for all of us to help all of us to give all of ourselves to him, not part of us, all of you. All of your life, your dreams, your ambitions, your career goals, your relationship desires, all of you is to be given to him. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, Paul, the apostle, who had his life radically transformed from a Jewish leader to a rejected leader of the Christian faith, wrote this, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. Make disciples. Firstly, become a disciple, give your life to him. Secondly, be willing to invest in others, proactively go and make disciples. And it says here of all the nations. So there's a breadth. We're called to go into all the world. Now all the world has come to Toronto. And so if we wanna reach the world as a local church, it's pretty obvious we should probably start here, but we need to start reaching those from other parts of the world who are here as well. And so as a church, we're starting to think about how to reach people who have recently come. The immigrant community needs food, housing, love, and they need to know about the God who loves them infinitely. Now, even as you hear this and as you think about us going to cultures that aren't historically Christian, that seems intolerant again. That seems imperialistic again. So I want to ask you a question Do we not try and convert people all the time? Who has been on Instagram for more than, I don't know, 10 minutes in the last year? If you've been on Instagram for more than 10 minutes, someone has tried to convince you that the best pizza in Toronto is Batty Alley. I don't know how many Instagram influencers have flown into my Instagram feed telling me that I've got to go to Batty Alley, such that Batty Alley regularly has 45 to 48 minute waits now. It can't be that good. But Toronto, you are trying to convince me it is. I don't know how many times I have walked down the streets Young Street, Queen Street, Bay Street, University, and seen guys with the lanyards and the blue T-shirts. you know, "Hey, do I, can I have a moment of your time? Who are they? They're the sick kids, kids out there trying to get you to donate. Sometimes it's the Princess Margaret people. I had one knock on my door last week. If we believe in something to be true and good, we have no problem telling others. I have a weakness. I introduce way too many people to my spectacular daughter. She's a little tired of church coffee time because I'll drag her into some group of you and say, this is my, this is Shayla. Now, my daughter is spectacular and I am very objective about that. (laughs) She's spectacularly funny. She's spectacularly tall. She's spectacularly mischievous. She is verbally as agile as anyone I have ever seen. I lose almost every argument I have to her and I want the world to know. The command is that there is someone more spectacular that we're to introduce people to. And part of being a disciple is telling others about your faith. Implications for us as a church. Firstly, we're gonna be a high commitment church. We always were, and we're not going to stop. We're gonna call you to give your life wholeheartedly to be reshaped by Jesus. Secondly, we wanna be a disciple-making church. You have told us in your feedback to us in this five-year planning process that you want more and deeper teaching and better equipping to be a public witness to help make disciples, and we're thrilled about that. We wanna join with you. Kingsley will be preaching in a couple of weeks and give a little bit more detail, but you have asked for and we have heard that you want deeper equipping to mature you and shape you more into the image of Jesus, we are going to do that. We will be having adult teaching sessions. We will be reshaping some of the ways we do small groups to give you more intentional and intense and rigorous ways to be shaped into the image of Jesus. As part of what we're calling a discipleship pathway, you will be challenged to go deeper and then be challenged to go back out, to go and make disciples. We have been slack and poor in this regard of pushing our most mature disciples as part of their maturity out into public witness, but we will. We will have an evangelistic pathway that connects people to Christ. You're gonna hear us emphasize Alpha, you probably heard today, much more than we did because it's a very simple way for people who are investigating the faith in a very non-threatening way to come. We'll be looking at using things like grace on tap more intentionally for evangelistic purposes, for you to bring your non-Christian friends to meet Christians and other non-Christians in very easy ways. We might make Grace on Tap monthly. We have Q&A. We're going to keep doing that. We may start having monthly Q&As after the service for anyone who wants to know. So we are trying our best to make ourselves contagiously evangelist, and we invite you into that process. But for you, hear this, I want you to look at Jesus and surrender your life to him and be willing to be the disciple he has called you to be. Stop making excuses. Are you afraid? He says go. Do you feel inadequate? He says go. But we'll talk about that one now. Finally, the promise. There remains one pretty large objection to the sermon it is this even if i'm not afraid i'm still not gifted or trained to do this and it's a sophisticated and complicated world out there so here and just here we need and particularly us presbyterians who can barely raise our hands except to vote for a church budget us presbyterians need to hear jesus's promise that his spirit is here. Behold, he says, I am with you always to the ends of the age. So Jesus commands us to go and then says, I am going to help you go. Does he say, and behold, I'm setting up great training programs for you to share your faith more effectively and great uh, answers to questions for you? No. He says something far better. I am with you. This is Jesus, the risen reigning king of the cosmos, promising that his spirit will be in you. What more men and women do you need? When the Ethiopian Eunuch was interested in Christianity, how much training did Philip get when he was just suddenly translated over and said, "Go talk to him." Okay? I'm going to go talk to him. What wh- what are you doing? I'm reading Isaiah 53. You read? Oh, I happen to know that. That's talking about Jesus. Who? Jesus, boom, becomes a Christian. So what evangelistic training method was used by the Spirit of God? None. The Spirit used himself and said to Philip, use me. Men and women, you actually have all the equipping you need if you have the Spirit of God in you to tell people around you about the God who died for you and rose for you and is opening his life to them. The actual last words, as far as we can tell, in the scriptures that Jesus gave before he left said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses at Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends, of the earth, there is more power in you now, men and women, than you will ever need. Does training help? Sure. We will try and give you some training. I've taken lots of training, by the way. I did not depend on my local church, because I was interested in learning to follow Jesus in this way. I read books, I listened to seminars and pod. Well, I didn't have podcasts back those days. I'm old, but I want to tell you about Anne. It's not her real name, but she was. Here at Grace. As far as I know, she never took a training class ever in how to share her faith. She was quiet, she was introverted, she was even a bit timid socially. She was a lawyer. I've made some snarky remarks about lawyers lately, so I'm giving you a a little more affirmation, you lawyers. She defended her client against a very successful and aggressive lawyer in a case, in a cross examination, and it shocked him. How dare she stand up to me? She's so young and so inexperienced. How could she? It astonished him. So he asked her out to lunch, and he just said it right to her. You know, why did you do that? And she said, because it's my job. You're not afraid of me? No. And then lunch came, and she bowed her head and silently prayed, and he went, wait a minute. You're not one of those, are you? You believe in God? She said, yes, and I know that he loves you. There's no training program I've ever seen that has that question and answer in it, and I've been to a few. The Spirit of God gave her that, and that answer so challenged him that he asked her out for a coffee, and then she said, I will only go if you come to my church. And you started coming to church, and then I'd get reports that the small group leaders were being harassed by this incredibly aggressive person who had no Christian faith and asked the hardest questions, and they couldn't answer it, and they felt completely inadequate. And so I was asked to meet with him. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to rescue these poor small group leaders, and I'll meet with them." So I go to the meeting, we're down on Bay Street, it's one of those Bay Street restaurants just filled with suits, and, uh, and there he is, and the, there are the other people, I can literally reach out to the other tables, so I'm like, I'm going to have to be careful here, and he's like, I just, I just, I, I have to receive Jesus, and I just kind of looked at him. So you pardon me? Well, I remember, and he started tells this whole story and how she astonished him and how these people started answering his questions and they were so nice that their that their changed lives affected him. And and then they so he got. Really, actually interested, and so then she sent him to this evangelistic rally where uh, some uh, American guy who's an evangelist was, you know, rather American and really direct. And you need to do this, and and he said, "I feel like I got the devil on my shoulder, and I need, and I mean, literally, I can hear the tables beside me are getting quiet." You know. (laughs) So I did what I normally do, and those of you, there are a number of you here who have come to faith with me in your presence, and I just go to Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, where it says, By faith, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And he said, okay, let's do it. So I went, okay, how do I do it? I said, bow your head and just pray. The... So he prayed with me. And I looked up, and it was really rather quiet, and then all of a sudden really loud at all the tables around me, and he came to faith. Where was the Spirit of God? In that story, through the whole thing, at every moment, in the legal encounter when she was feisty with him and astonished him, in the the lunch meeting when she had the simple courage to say, and I know he loves you, and before that, to bow her head and silently pray, in those crazy small group meetings where all these small group leaders were pulling out their hair, and yet he was impressed with them. In that restaurant, he was there. Men and women, we live in a society that thinks that God just occasionally intervenes in moments of great need. I'm here to tell you that is such an unbiblical view of the world we live in. The world that actually exists is a world created by a personal God out of the depth of his personal love who personally oversees and looks and sees and intervenes and is with people all the time. Trust the spirit to overcome your sense of anxiety. And finally, I just want to say this to those of you like me who don't have the gift of evangelism. Most of you think because I have seen a lot of people come to faith that I must have some gift of evangelism. No, this is what usually happens. By the time they come to me, I'm like, I'm like the guy at the ticket counter, like at the Taylor Swift concert. In, in, in. That's all I do, you know. They go from out to in, and I'm there. And I have Ephesians 2. Punch the ticket. Do you know what Ephesians are? Yes. Boom. I don't do the work. The Spirit does the work, and He uses all of us together to do the work. And Jesus said, you may not have the gift, but you can sow a seed. In John chapter 4, Jesus says to his disciples who have watched a Samaritan woman walk to Jesus and have ignored her to go to town to buy food, and he shared with her and she came to faith, and then all of that town is coming, and he looks and he sees, he says, do you not say there are four months and then comes a harvest? Look, he says at that time to the 12, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Men and women, we will rejoice together. You may not be gifted with talking to people, but you can help be a host for an Alpha meeting. You may not be a, a, you could serve, you, you, can, you, can, you can let people in, you can serve a GT Kids who needs volunteers right now, by the way, so that their parents, and many people who are not Christian come as parents here, and they can hear about Jesus and his love. You could help organize Grace on Tap or a Friday Night at Grace, or you could help with one of our other opportunities. There is a a baptism coming, and I'm not going to steal the thunder, but a skeptic was finishing university and feeling out of sorts. So they called the one Christian they knew, I think, and the Christian said, you ought to go to a Good Friday service that's being held by a bunch of churches. We were one of them. He showed up. A student in our church recognized him. That student didn't go to his school, but recognized him and talked to him, introduced him to me and to others. He started coming. As he came, a bunch of grad students befriended him. I met with him and tried to answer some of his questions. They were above my pay grade. A different student in our church took him out for a beer and a burger. And in that process, with all of those people and touch points, God used all of those sowers to reap the harvest. We all rejoiced together sowers be faithful in your sowing reapers be faithful in your reaping look upon him who died and rose again and who says to all of us go and make disciples let's pray father i thank you and i praise you for your goodness and your grace come now into our hearts make us disciples who can go and make disciples we pray in christ's name amen So I am uh, way over time, which I knew, but I have a couple of questions. If God wants a relationship with us so much, why is he not more apparent? Why are people's experience with him so subjective and varied? Why doesn't he seem real in the day-to-day? Great question. I will begin to answer it, but it, it deserves a much longer answer. First of all, if you look at the Gospels, you see subjectively differing experiences of God. Some believed in Jesus, some were affected, some were marginally affected, some rejected it outright. So the, the, the subjective variation of people's experience of the same objective event is pretty normal. I'll give you that. Why doesn't he seem real in the day-to-day? I think partly because of what I've said. We've been trained to think of this as a mechanistic universe that operates on naturalistic principles. And basically, God isn't there. He comes in once in a while, and that's it. So with that training and being immersed in that worldview, what's your expectation? You don't see him when he's working half the time, but he's working. I remember going to um, uh, a hospital and being told I needed surgery for my eye. Uh, There's some cloud there from um, eye cancer uh, and the surgery from it. Uh, They got the cancer, but there's just vitreous fluid everywhere, and so my eye is losing a little bit of vision. They said, you should do surgery. So they booked me with a specialist. I went to a uh, church event in another country. They said, I have a word of knowledge for for, for all of you that there's someone in here who needs surgery for a cloud in their eye. This is really weird. I've never had this, but if if that's you, come forward, and I, I looked at... Stephen and he looked at me and we were shocked I'd never you know I'm not particularly charismatic I'm Presbyterian I raised my hands once in a while but that was me so I was so nervous I I didn't go up and finally I came up and I told him and he prayed and so did Stephen I just went to see my St. Michael's top end specialist said you don't need surgery That's just two medical opinions that disagree with each other, right? Right? Or is it the presence of God that we can see or not see, depending on how we saw those events? I think that's enough. Isn't it, Lewis? We should should (laughs) sing, shouldn't we? If you have more questions, send them to me. I'll answer them privately. Please rise for the song of response.